Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Rana Abdelhamid, a human rights organizer, entrepreneur, martial artist, and the ultimate community builder. I was introduced to Rana a couple of years ago by my friend Louis, and like him, I found her story to be incredible. And so when I got a chance, I asked her if she'd be willing to go on my show, and I'm grateful that she said yes and shared her story. On this show, you'll hear about a woman who was born and raised in Queens, New York. Rana has a deep love of the community that she grew up in. And it was in 2010 that she was a victim of a hate crime where a man grabbed her and tried to yank off her hijab from off of her head. And Rana, like many other women, felt insecure in that moment and unsafe. And she describes how her body felt powerless. And ultimately, she felt very alone. But it was in that moment of loneliness that she had a vision to help others who were feeling the same way. And so at the young age of 16, Rana had the vision of Melika, a nonprofit organization that she built up over the past 10 years. It is a global grassroots movement supporting women's empowerment through self-defense, through entrepreneurship, and organizing training. Since then, they have trained over 20,000 women and girls in 20 cities around the world with four primary pillars of healing, self-defense, organizing, and financial literacy. In addition to leading Melika's mission around the world, Rana also has a full-time job at Google that she balances. She's actively involved in their diversity and inclusion programs. She is a black belt in karate, and she has given an incredible TED Talk. I mean, I meet a lot of people who inspire and motivate me, and thankfully many agree to be on my show. But rarely have I come across such maturity and drive combined with compassion in a person, let alone one at such a young age. I found it an absolute treat to interview her, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Rana. Welcome to the show. At the young age of 16, you founded a women's initiative for self-empowerment known as WISE that has evolved to now be Melika. And it's a beautiful nonprofit that focuses on self-defense and leadership and entrepreneurship for young Muslim women. I know you have a black belt in karate, which was the genesis of why you focused a little bit more on self-defense for Melika in the beginning. But first, I know our listeners really love hearing about where people grew up and their background. And so if you don't mind starting from there of where you grew up. A hundred percent. I love talking about where I grew up. Everyone who knows me knows that. So I'm from Queens. I was born and raised in Queens, New York, which is kind of, if you could imagine it, this very small business, community-based, immigrant, working-class pockets of ethnic neighborhoods that I had the opportunity to really be exposed to at a very young age. 
and was because of that, because of the diversity of Queens and the hustle of Queens kind of learned all these really important values of hard work, of sacrifice, the value of being connected cross-culturally and valuing different people's perspectives and upbringings and language learning. And so a lot of my childhood in Queens is really formative to who I am today as a young person. So I grew up in in a very Egyptian, typical Egyptian immigrant household. My parents immigrated here in 1992. And right after me, my brother was born, who is a year younger than me. And we grew up kind of in this household that really valued education, where my dad like worked extremely hard, my mom worked extremely hard, but we're still committed to finding time to making sure that our cultural values were kind of part of our core belief system, that we went to Sunday school, where we were connected to a broader community, where we still had the opportunity to travel to Egypt, which is where we were from, so we were connected to our culture. And so it was always like this bicultural existence, I think, where I went to public school, but then still kind of was steeped into a very Egyptian traditional household. And so a lot of my listeners know, I generally ask about your background, where you grew up, childhood, and then it kind of fast forward a little bit to college, because I feel like that sets you up for kind of your early 20s. And that's like this, the ecosystem which you create in this defining decade of your 20s. Your background is interesting, because I know that you had a major impact when you were earlier than before you went to college. Can you describe what happened when you were 16 and really kind of the path that that led to or why that was a catalyst for you to act on it? I think my story is a bit interesting because I lived in a very political context growing up post 9-11 as a young Muslim woman, growing up working class, growing up as a person of color in New York, where there was all these different policies that really impacted my community and criminalized my community in various ways. Directly, I was impacted because at the age of 15, I was assaulted by a man who tried to take off my hijab. And unfortunately, that moment left me feeling very vulnerable, really alone, really terrified, and very insecure in my own skin. And that kind of sense of insecurity drove me to want to think about my own. I didn't have the language for it then, obviously, but now I know my own healing, my own community, my own safety. And it propelled me on this path of really thinking about grassroots community and collective community care. So when you were 15 or 16, you decided, okay, let's help others not feel so much of a victim. What did you do after that? What was the time period from when you were assaulted to when you started the organization? It was about a year. It didn't happen right away. It wasn't like an automatic ideation process, but I started to learn more about other people's stories. And at the time, I had already been plugged into a lot of the political activism scene in New York. I had been volunteering at a domestic violence shelter. I had examples of women in my life who had started organizations, who had been plugged into different organizing spaces that I kind of learned from and looked up to. And so it felt very natural for me to embody that when you see a problem, you should also try to find a solution. Because I saw that modeled with my mother. I saw it modeled through a lot of women in my neighborhood. So that's kind of how it happened. At first, there was a lot of resistance. I didn't think it was going to be an organization. It was like a one-summer program. And obviously, it's grown to something I never imagined it would be since then. And just two years ago, we rebranded to Malika. And there is an evolution there, too, which I'm happy to talk about as well. Yeah, it's complicated. So actually, if you want me to go way, way back, when I first started, I don't tell anyone this, 
but now the whole world's gonna know i don't know but the first name of the program was unbreakable strength and it went through many iterations of names and then it became menti muslima and then it became wise and then it became melika and hopefully it will stay as melika what does melika mean melika means queen power or beauty in eight different languages which is pretty amazing yeah amazing. i know that you are a middlebury alum how did you choose middlebury and what was your path to that college Everyone's always like, Rana, how did you go from Queens to Middlebury, Vermont? And I'm like, word, I have no idea. So there's this incredible, incredible man in Queens named Peter Wilson. And he's very well known in the community. Anyone from Queens who went through public school in Queens knows Peter Wilson because he got us all into college, basically. So when our parents didn't really understand this really tricky overwhelming college process system he kind of took a bunch of low-income kids and we would like sit in this community center and he would review our applications and talk to us about scholarships and we'd do SAT prep and I remember he also was a full-time counselor at a public school in the neighborhood and he was like Rana you should apply to Posse and I was like what's Posse and he was like it's a scholarship program it's really good opportunity and so that's kind of how I was introduced to Middlebury so I had never and this was August of my senior year I was five months away from actually the reality of when I got accepted. I had never been to Middlebury. I had no idea what a liberal arts institution was. I didn't understand what being in a suburb slash rural environment would be. And when I asked, even when I was looking at the colleges, I didn't really do that much research on my own. Like I kind of understood, but I really trusted Peter in helping me identify which made the most sense based off my interests. So that's how I kind of selected Middlebury to be my first choice actually, and I applied early decision to Middlebury through the Posse Scholarship. For the listeners who aren't as familiar with Posse, can you give a little bit of color there and your experience with it? Yeah, Posse is amazing. Posse is a scholarship program that was founded by Debbie Beal, who was a former school teacher, who one time, one of her students looked at her and said to her, I wouldn't have dropped out of college if I had my Posse with me. And the whole idea is that oftentimes students of color, when they're isolated on campuses that might be elite or class elites or they might be racial minorities on a campus, they might feel isolated and therefore drop out. But if you have like that support system, you're more likely to stay the four years. And so you go actually as a posse. So when I went to Middlebury, I had 10 other students with me who were from across New York, who had similar public school backgrounds. And we stayed the four years together and we supported each other through the four years of being at Middlebury. And what did you do after Middlebury? After Middlebury College, I attended graduate school. I attended the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and I got a degree in public policy, which was an amazing, amazing experience. Most people say don't go to grad school directly from undergrad, which I don't know if it was the right choice, but I loved my experience because I got exposed to a lot of different, incredibly intelligent people from across the globe. And it's a wonderful program to get into, so congrats for that. And all along the way, were you still working on the nonprofit? The whole time. As a student, every weekend I was basically off campus. There were many times where I missed class, but my professors were super compassionate about it. Same as a grad school student. In addition to running Melika, I was also organizing. And so I was doing stuff around the Muslim ban at the time, was doing stuff around Black Lives Matter at the time. Even when I was at Middlebury College, I was also organizing while also doing my stuff with Melika. And even now with a full-time job, I also do Melika. And it's quite hectic because the travel is pretty intense, but I love every moment of it. So it's great. So rewinding a little bit, what did you do after the Harvard Kennedy program? So after graduating from Harvard, I actually got accepted to a job at Google. 
and I started doing brand marketing, which is very different at Google Cloud, which is Google's enterprise company. But it was like a really great opportunity because I basically it was like a marketing boot camp. And I never saw marketing as a career for me. I still don't know if I'm going to do it long term, but I really love storytelling. I love creative storytelling. And so much of my work is creative. And marketing is such a creative industry that like starting there, getting those really solid skills in marketing and then pivoting it now, running Google's women in tech brand is really an awesome thing to be able to do. That is incredible. I don't know how you balance all of that. So can you tell me a little bit more about the rise of Melika? How much has it grown? How much has it impacted? You travel around the world. How does that work for you? I mean, it's so tied to my personal development. So even in the name changes are so symbolic, the growth of our team is so symbolic, the types of programming, so much of it has been an evolution of my own understanding of how social change manifests. But my vision has always been the same. My vision from the beginning has always been, how do I build safety for women in my neighborhood? How do I build power for women in my neighborhood? And today, if you were to ask me what the vision was, our vision is building safety and power for women around the world. And it's still very much rooted in local community-based programmatic work and community-based organizing. The evolution has happened in many ways in the sense that my definition of who are my people and which women and how broadly can this work impact many women across the globe has shifted and has broadened. The structures of our programming and the scale of our programming has shifted. So when I started, it was kind of like, all right, I have one skill, I can teach self-defense, and I know all these women on my block. And so I started with what I knew, I started with who I knew, and I started doing the self-defense programming. Now, it was more... How do I actually achieve this vision? My goal, if you look at domestic violence statistics, gender-based violence statistics, they're so staggering and they're so terrifying that you're like, how do we live in a world where there's still one in four women in the entire global experience some level of intimate partner violence, some level of sexual violence in her lifetime? And my vision is like, how do I get that number to one in 10? How do I get that number to one in 15? And identify these four programs in a way that makes me feel like we could actually move the needle on this issue. So with self-defense, which is physical de-escalation of violence, but also having women really understand the power of their own body and redefine what power looks like and redefine their own personal strength. The second is this financial literacy work that we do, which is also understanding that women's economic empowerment and economic justice is so important because we should have access to capital, we should have access to opportunities that allow us to turn our ideas into business and to, into reality. The third, which is integrated into everything we do, is this idea of healing justice, which a lot of people, when I say healing justice, they're like, hmm, there's like a question mark, because they're like, what is that? And the way I like to describe it is, imagine AA, which is a very common model for healing, but take AA, and instead of being focused on healing through an addiction and through this public health framework, instead look at it as kind of healing through racial trauma, healing through gender trauma, and in collective. So there are like healing circles, sister circles that we host with a curriculum that we've built over the years. And then the fourth thing, which is our actual model for change, which we've exported to now be a train the trainer model that folks can use and leverage, is our organizing framework, which is basically this idea that, all right, we can learn self-defense, we can learn financial literacy, we could learn to heal and we could heal together, but 
change needs to happen at a structural level, change needs to happen at a cultural level, and unless we change institutions, unless we change systems, then we're always gonna see this violence manifest. And so organizing is deeply rooted in what we do. So there's so much more in that that I wanna unpack because the four programs sounds individually so exhausting to do and you have four of them. How did it evolve to that? Initially, I think it was just self-defense. How did you then add the second and the third and the fourth program? So initially it was a self-defense and healing. So the healing was very natural in the sense that it wasn't even self-defense. I would literally be teaching karate, which uh, you can't really use karate in a real life situation. It was cute, it's traditional, it's beautiful, but it's not actually practical. And then after each karate class, naturally the women in the group, we just sit and we talk. And we talk through all these experiences that we all found in common with our own stories that oftentimes were very deeply rooted in these different forms of violence, but like passed on trauma. And so if you're a child of immigrants, if you're working class, if you are a person of color, there are similar types of experiences that you might go through living in the U.S. And we were gaining the vocabulary to articulate these different forms of pain and violence. So that healing has always happened. We just basically built the curriculum through the years through a very iterative process to make it accessible. The organizing was us taking what we do, that we are grassroots, that we're in community, and that we're understanding the power structures that exist and then using our collective community to actually create change. So for example, we would do these healing spaces in a mosque and we would identify, we'd be like, all right, we've been doing this in a mosque. We realized that one of the big problems is that the mosque space may not be as friendly as we want it to be for women. And then we realized, well, maybe it's because the entire board is men. And then we're like, okay, maybe collectively we can try to do something to change it so that there's one woman elected to the board in two years. And so that is how we start to organize. And we created a curriculum to train women to think about how they could do that. And the financial literacy is, I mean, very fundamentally basics of budgeting, thinking through investment, thinking through student loans. And it's really important because it comes from, again, my personal story. I realized as someone who became economically mobile, I had so much anxiety around money. And I realized that a lot of women around me had so much anxiety around money who were coming from similar backgrounds. And as a result, we weren't engaged with our finances in a meaningful way. I want to ask a little bit more about just your community building, because I think it's so important for people to hear I think that's at the heart and soul of what you're trying to do. It's build a community and that connection. I don't know if you've ever read that. I mean, maybe you probably have. It's a very popular book. If you've ever read Our Kids or Bowling Alone, but there's a scholar named Robert Putnam who talks about social capital theory within the context of the United States and how because there aren't necessarily these community-based consistent structures, people don't really know each other. So you could go to Soul Cycle, you go to brunch, but if something really bad were happening to you, you don't really have that person who's going to have your back beyond maybe three people. And that's really dangerous because that's how you end up with very poor community networks that hold each other up. And so I'm trying to create community capital in a millennial brunch age, which is like really weird. That's kind of what the wing tries to do. There are all these organizations that are trying to do it too. And I think being proactive about it is really genuinely be authentic about your relationship. It seems really hard because everything's so transient and extractive. And it's like, what can you do for me? What can I do for you? But we just have to get over that because then that's, I feel like society, democracy, so much is at stake. 
when we're not really genuinely invested in one another. I couldn't agree more. I feel like part of the show has been so rewarding because I think I've been in a more of a transactional industry that is, it's certainly investments focused, but it is that you meet someone and there's a transaction or there's less of a focus on who are you? Let's build a connection on a real relationship. And as I get older, I just realize that's actually what's more important. And it's something I just deeply focus on now more and more. And I try to talk about that with my kids. I want to actually talk about a little bit of almost like the hate that you're surrounded by. Not you personally, but like the causes of what you're working against. It's such a deeply rooted, myopic viewpoint. So it's twofold. I don't think this hate exists outside of structures and institutions. I think that there are very intentional policy decisions that are made that lead to the type of hate-based violence that we see. And research shows that. People are like, oh, hate-based attacks happen after terrorist events. And I'm like, but the research doesn't show that. The research actually shows hate-based attacks happen around election cycles because politicians use violent rhetoric that dehumanizes community that allow for this violence to take place. People talk about gender-based violence as almost in a way that's divorced from structure. And I'm like, if gender-based violence was something that our government structures cared about, then you wouldn't have rape kits that don't have funding to be processed. There would be prioritization in a way where funding is being placed. And so for me, it's actually deeply rooted in structural change. And even though I am building from a place of love and place of joy, I do realize that this is a history of violence that we need to dismantle and we need to build alternative systems that allow for us to exist in a way that is whole and a way that is peaceful. Because right now, the current systems that exist are deeply problematic and are violent globally. And so that happens on many levels. It happens structurally, it happens culturally, it happens economically. And I think we do the education for our community so that they could identify how they want to create that change. So when you come to an organizing institute, we're not just sharing our stories, but we're also doing a history of like white feminism because we're understanding this is why women of color, women who look like us have been kept out of these spaces for so long. We learn about colonization. We learn about the white supremacist state. We talk about policing, all these things that are super key and foundational to us as women being able to understand why we experience the type and carry the type of violence that we carry. At the same time, we do it in a context of building relationships. We do it in a context where we have each other's back as we're building out these campaigns because we know it's going to be hard because historically women who've done this work have been targets and have their lives have been at risk for doing this work. So that's why we think it's important to happen in community. So you did a wonderful TED Talk. Can you share the inspiration for that and what your thoughts were going through that whole process? The TED Talk was one of the most emotional processes for me because I really had to sit down. Like, I'm always on the go, go, go. And it was the first time where I was like, all right, I have to sit down and I have to process my life and why I'm at where I am at today. And I kept asking myself, okay, I have this platform. If I have one message I could give to any of the young women that I work with, what is this one message that I want to send to them? And I distilled it to three tips on how to start a movement or like a three-step framework for how to start a movement. Because I basically distilled the work that I've been doing and thought about how I've been able to scale and thought it would be really beautiful if other folks who were interested in creating change also understood maybe something about how I was able to build what I built. So the first thing was basically start with what you know, which I kind of said today. 
The second is start with who you know. And the third is start with joy. And that's what it kind of came down to. Can you expand on start with joy? When you're doing gender-based violence work or any form of work that is kind of a reaction to a form of violence, especially in organizing and activism, oftentimes you might enter a space and it's really exhausting. You just walk into an activist room and it just like hits you that everyone's tired (laughs) and angry and upset and all for good reason because the work is very emotional. I mean, I have lost people in this work. I have seen my friends survivors of different forms of violence and their devastation like it's been very traumatizing and hard gender-based violence is a part of my story hate-based violence is a part of my story but I realized that in order for me to actually fully heal and this is very personal I think everyone goes through their own healing process in different ways for me personally in my own healing I realized that in order for me to organize in a way that is not in reaction to my anger I had to organize for instead of against something So I started actually organizing for a vision of a world that I have seen and I have experienced, which is a vision of the world that was like me entering a room with like all of my favorite homegirls and we're cooking and eating and dancing and buying each other flowers and writing poetry and loving on each other rather than the anger of some sexist system that was defining kind of my life. So I didn't let that define my life and my work. I let my love for women define my work. And that's what I mean by joy, is that really instilling love for each other and connection and relationship building as the center, it changes the energy and the output of the community that you're building. That's beautiful. I love that. How did you switch from that? So I think it's such a powerful ability and skill to switch from the anger and negative thoughts to joyful, positive energy and to make that switch. How did you get out of that or transition to that? Or was it just a mindset that you were born with? No, not at all. I mean, I was very angry. When you think of the stereotypical kind of activist, you're just like down with the system. That was me for most of my teenage years, for most of my college years. And I think that was really important. I think that was a really important part of my growth. And I think it's very valid. I don't look down upon it. I think there are people who are in the room who should be angry and who need to bring that energy. and. I value those people who are in my spaces. But for me, it was a lot of reflection on like, whoa, I am so sad all the time. I was like, yeah, all this stuff has happened to me and my history and my people. But if I'm just walking around carrying this baggage, I also am not giving myself the life of joy that I also deserve. And so not only has this violence perpetuated violence on my body, but it's also like taking away my ability to love and be in joy and be in community. And so actually my reflection on joy was part of my resistance. It was like, I deserve to be happy. And in that recognition, it shifted a lot of my mentality that I needed to be angry to be effective. Even though I do see value in anger, it wasn't for me all the time. That's amazing. Can you give our listeners a history of Malika in terms of when you started it to the names and also today, How big is it? How did you scale it? So when I first started it, it was called Unbreakable Strength. And it was, like I said, very rooted in a very specific community that I most identified with, which was the Muslim community that was in Astoria. And then increasingly, I was training trainers, which is what our model is deeply rooted in. So I don't do majority of programs now. We have curricula. There are women who go and take these programs and implement them in their own community. And for me, there were very key moments in Melika's history, where I realized 
wow, this programming isn't specific to just a community that I identify with. And also I could scale without being directly connected to a community. So for example, if we're doing work with, for example, after the election, a lot of folks reached out who are Jewish and they were like, we want to bring self-defense and upstander, bystander training to our community. And even though I wasn't part of that community, there was still space for me to be able to provide that training for folks to then train it in their neighborhoods and in their community spaces. So that's the evolution. It was like, all right, how do I scale it so that this is a tool that anyone can bring into their space whenever it's needed in a way that is accessible? When you think about goals, do you think about career goals, personal goals, medical goals? How do you think about progression? I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I'm chipping away at different parts of Medica and it feels like everything is kind of unfolding, a lot of the plans that we've been laying out. So the way I think about it right now in this stage is how do I build a foundation for Medica so that it could stand on its own? So that this model of leadership is not all centered around me. So we recently hired an executive director. I've been working really hard to copyright and to make our curriculum very almost like a manual that anyone can kind of pick up and use, building out really core institutional materials that can allow for sustained programmatic growth, which sounds really boring because it is. And a lot of fundraising and a lot of legislative legal things and copyrights and trademark and all this stuff. But that's kind of where I'm at. I think in terms of growth, that foundation is going to be super important to a vision of us being institutionalized across various continents, across various institutions globally, where Medica self-defense education becomes kind of something that people do. They take it in class and it's very normalized which is what my vision is for Medica. I talk to a lot of people at work and also for this show, and it seems like part of personal inspiration and what keeps people going is the ability to affect individuals and community and build that up. And you surround yourself with this ecosystem that you've built, which is amazing and probably motivating on your own. Do you ever just get tired of it and say, I need a break? Or is it so, does it just fuel you so much that you don't get exhausted? I mean, there are different parts of it. So there are different parts of it where I'm like, ah, oh, I'm so tired of this. I never want to write a grant for the rest of my life. But I'm very intentional about making sure that I'm still rooted in my communities. Even though my leadership sometimes like, Rana, you don't need to be teaching that self-defense class. You should be doing this. Because they're very protective of my time. I think that stuff is really important because that's what gives me that energy. So every Saturday, I'm in Brooklyn in a local mosque working with 14 and 15-year-old girls who are literally they're me 10 years ago and I'm talking to them about the challenges that they're facing with their mom and what this boy said to them and I'm teaching them self-defense and they're building relationships together and that for me is what sustains me when I'm sitting there kind of trying to meet with a donor or not that it's that boring but doing the stuff that's like really tactical to get the machine oiled and moving and then for me it's also the training the training gives me so much joy and my parents see it they're like you're so happy. And I'm like, yeah, because I love self-defense. I love doing this healing justice work. So it feels like each part of it fuels a different part of me. Did you have a role model or a mentor that helped you? You'd mentioned in high school, Peter Wilson was very impactful in your life in terms of getting to college. But in terms of whether it's at Melika or at work or anyone that you really look up to. I mean, I feel so lucky because I work with women who inspire me deeply. 
we just onboarded 20 women activist organizers for our organizing institute, all of them experts in various forms of organizing in their community. I'm like, I want to be all of you when I grow up. I can't be a housing and maternal health expert and all that, but that's really beautiful and important. And then I have mentors who guide me in different parts of my life. I have spiritual mentors who are deeply important for me as someone who's religious. I have an organizing mentor. Her name is Tinjiwe McCarris. I met her when I was 15. She does a lot of racial justice work, and I always go to her whenever I have questions about organizing. I have business mentors because Melika is a social enterprise in many ways, and I have to make sure that I'm being my business mentors. I was like, stop being so social, be more economical so you could do the social. It creates balance in my life. So I'm the type of person who really does have a tribe, and I would not be able to do the stuff that I do without the constant advice and support of people who check in on me every single week. I mean, similar to your posse in college, do you still keep in touch with them as well? Yeah, there are some members of my posse who I'm still in touch with and are still deeply important to my life. I was just on Middlebury College campus, actually, which is so awesome. We hosted our first ever organizing institute at Middlebury. So that community is always going to be something that's deeply near to my heart and that I feel grounded in. When you think about your interests and the causes that you're looking to help kind of attack, really, when you think about gender-based violence and religious-based violence, how do you split your time? Because individually, that's so much already. What I've realized over the years is that all of this violence is intersectional. And the majority of the women that we work with are brown and black women who straddle various identities, who have experienced various forms of violence, and who are always reminding me that none of this violence exists in silo. It feeds off of each other in many ways. And it's kind of hard to stomach because you're existing in your body with all of these different identities. And so we don't tackle them in separate silos because when I walk into a room and there are queer women who are also black, who are Muslim, there are women who are undocumented, there are women who are English is their second language, they're immigrants, all these different things that they might carry into that space. It's a learning for me because I'm learning about all these different identities. But then it's also the reality of our world and how we solve for the violence. We have to look at it from a lens that is very intersectional and very inclusive. I think the thing that does frustrate me in terms of folks who may not necessarily do the work is folks who are criticizing work and they're not there so I think what we're doing with Malika is really revolutionary and radical in the sense that we are a group of women of color who are leading a women's rights movement which historically the women's rights movement has been very white or folks who have been at the forefront of it who've been given the mic have been very white and so when we're given visibility or we're taking up a lot of space and people aren't happy about that I'm very unapologetic, one, and I tell my community and people to be very unapologetic. And I think when you're kind of creating that space, it ruffles feathers. And so a couple of years ago, I was a target of an online white supremacist campaign that was really violent and really problematic. And I'm like, all right, these people can say what they want, but they don't understand my community. They don't know my people. And it's my connection to the love of my community is what keeps me going in the face of that. You mentioned a lot of Melika's group is brown and black women. How much of your work is spent on educating other 
demographics outside of that because so much of it is the support system is there. It's more of the external structure that needs the education. Honestly, none of it. None of it. And it's very shocking to folks because they're like, do you spend time speaking to allies? And I'm like, there is real important work that should happen in the context of allyship that I really value and I think is really important, but that's just not my space. And my space and my focus has always been to create community, to create power, to create safety in the context of brown and black women mostly. I mean, there are white women who are in our spaces, obviously, and they bring a lot of power and perspective into those spaces. But I don't spend a lot of time doing that education work. We have increasingly been doing programming for men, and that's been very interesting. But even then, men are using our healing justice curriculum in their own spaces. But to be quite frank, I don't even spend that much time really bringing their work together. They do all the organizing just because I don't feel like that's the space that I should be taking up right now. But I do see value and I think that's important. So in the 10 plus years, kind of decade long program that you've built up, what would you say are some things that you learned from and you reflect back that are either surprising that our listeners might find interesting or for yourself even that you were kind of shocked by? So much. I mean, the first thing is to be really open to change because Melika's model has literally changed constantly and oftentimes when you have a vision and you're really tied to it your model for change can seem tied to your vision but that might not be the case and so for me my north star has always been the same but getting to my north star can vary and allowing myself that flexibility to not only involve new people involve new perspectives take a step back but also push forward different types of ways in which we can engage that challenge has been something that's been really new to me always all the time, but also been challenging sometimes because you're like, I've built this whole thing. Now what? And you just have to toss it sometimes if it doesn't work. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, which I think a lot of founders struggle with, right? This founder syndrome, really remembering that it's not about you because I think oftentimes founders, and this is something like founders, big personalities, take up a lot of space. And sometimes I got to be like, Rana, hold up. This is not the Rana show. And that's been the only way we've been able to do what we've done. Nobody in DC knows me. Like nobody in Texas knows me. They know Hind or they know Kinda, our organizers out there. Because otherwise it wouldn't have grown if I would have. It's hard to scale just a one woman show. Yeah, it's impossible. And it's hard to scale something that you hold on to so tightly. What are you most proud of so far? I'm so proud of our organizers. Anytime a woman is able to take any of our content and then just transform it into her own thing, into her own context, learn and grow from it, is a better self-defense instructor than I will ever be. I'm like, this is it. This is exactly what I want. Because for me, that is transformational leadership. And to be able to witness it is such a gift. So the namesake of the show is Growth from Failure. And I would imagine that starting a nonprofit and also certainly your academic work and also your professional work has included a lot of failures. But I always ask each guest if you could expand on your most impactful or memorable failure. So I'd love to hear what yours is. I think especially for me as a young person, as a woman of color, my value has always been really tied to my labor and my output, especially starting so young. Sometimes what you do becomes who you are. I think that's really dangerous because then you don't really give yourself time for self and for healing and for growth. And I think 
to be able to run something effectively, to sustain it, to be someone who's patient and compassionate, you need to also be well-rested. You need to create time for creativity. You need to take time for personal growth. And so my biggest failure is that there were times where I literally would burn myself out and I like was at the ER, literally dehydrated, supposed to be on a flight. And I'm like, I got to get on that flight. And the doctor's like, you're insane. Stop. And I'm like literally on my computer. You know, when you watch a sitcom and you're like, this is the person you should never be. That was me. (laughs) And you realize, wow, I'm such a hypocrite because I'm not practicing what I'm preaching. I'm out here like literally facilitating workshop on self-care and I'm out here not self-caring. And so integrating habits of self-care, but then also knowing that my self-care might look different than other people's. So my thing is like, I'll work real hard for four months, maybe not sustainable. I don't know what people are going to say about this. And then I'll take a month off straight, not do anything. And that's been something that I've been doing recently and it's been really helpful. The second thing is when I first started in organizing, I was kind of like, all right, I'm a Muslim woman. So I could go into this room and organize the National Muslim Women Summit or organize this Muslim space. And everyone's kind of going to get it because we're all Muslim women. And I've learned later on also that you could put any ethnic identity group and it'll be kind of similar. So if I was like, I'm going to organize all Egyptians, they're going to get it. And very quickly in my early organizing years, I learned that's not the case. And so there's so much diversity in space that it's not enough to just bring people into space and expect for healing, relationship building, respect, expect for creativity and growth to happen. There have been rooms I've had to hold where people are crying because Folks have been racist to each other. There's class tension. And because I hadn't done the research and been intentional about how am I bringing these people together, it's been very difficult, especially in the line of this work where it is very emotional. And so early on, it was like, I always have to do my homework. I always have to be real intentional about how I set up space. I always have to do, I need to be constantly reading and learning about different forms of identity formation and different forms of healing and create space for me to listen to other folks who I could grow from is what I've learned through that process as a facilitator. What defines success for you? For me, defining success, there are two things. There's a very tactical one, which is the numbers thing that I talked to you about. How am I actually, in context of this community I'm building and organizing with, having this real impact, measured impact in the long term on the violence that women face? locally but then also globally so that's one the second level of success is just for me so much of medica is about relationship building so if i'm able to really build out this organization in a way where at the very minimum it's just a community of women who are deeply invested in each other and i could model that women who understand collective care understand self-care love on each other, create joy for each other, have each other's back, that for me would be success. I would be really happy. I don't know. My friends always laugh at me because I always have like 500 side hustles. I'm a very creative person, which is hard as hell because I always have 500 ideas and I'm always like, let me try to do all these things. For Melika or other things? No, for other things. So a lot of my stuff is storytelling. I have business, obviously stuff around Melika. So I think for me, what's next is thinking more broadly about how I individually can have more structural impacts on a policy level beyond organizing. So I've always thought about pivoting my career to public service, 
from being in the private sector. So that's something that's definitely in my mind is like, how do I get into public sector? Where can people find out more about Rana and Melika? So people can go on www.melika.org, M-A-L-I-K-A-H.org for information on Melika. Yeah, and they could follow me on social. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This was a really fun conversation. Thank you so much.